Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Jesus, the King Who Came to Die, a study of the Gospel of Mark. This dynamic, fast-paced book gives the story of Jesus the Messiah, God's Son, the King, who came to suffer and die to save His people. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. We're going to be uh, continuing in Mark's Gospel. We're doing uh, just verses 12 and 13 today. If you are wondering, as you look at 16 chapters of Mark's Gospel, and we tend to be doing like two verses a week, I, I promise it will speed up in a little bit, but the first 15 chapters is Mark's real introduction to the book, and he's kind of laying out where we're going to be going. So we're taking time to get some ideas, and then we will jump in and begin moving a little bit faster as we move along. So Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, I'm going to be reading from the New International Version. Um, I will point out a couple of things this morning, um, actually, from, from Greek, just to help us understand a little bit more um, about what the Lord is speaking to us. So Mark 1, 12 and 13, you can follow along in your booklet or up on the screen um, and on your Bible. So hear now the word of your King. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. One of the interesting things in the Gospels is there are three Gospels that are known as the synoptics, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they are called synoptics, that actually comes from Greek, and it means to see together. The S-Y-N or S-U-N, you, you sometimes see it, means together with each other. Um, and optic is to see together. So the synoptics were called that because they're really, really similar with one another. So you may have noticed as I read those two verses, you may think, gee, I remember there being a lot more about the temptation and what went on. And you do, because if you've read Matthew and Luke, they actually give us at least three specific temptations that Satan brought to Jesus. And that brings up something that's important for us, and, and I've mentioned this briefly in an after hours, but want to kind of mention this morning, which is there's two different ways to read the synoptic gospels, and they're both important. Number one, it's important to read each of them alone because Mark is being anointed by the Holy Spirit to tell a specific story in a specific way. And so we need to read him and not always be trying to see what Matthew was saying or Luke was saying because when you read biblical books that cover the same material, it's important to understand their own story. By way of example, actually, if the same thing is true when you're reading Kings and Chronicles. And in the book of Kings, for example, the king uh, Manasseh is the epitome of evil. And he is a great explanation for why Israel went into exile. But in the book of Chronicles, Manasseh is the epitome of a picture of repentance. So in Kings, we're never even told that Manasseh repented because in essence, the book of Kings is explaining why Israel went into exile. Chronicles is written at the end of the exile and it's written to give Israel hope. So the same character, they emphasize two different things about the person. And so it's important to let Kings 
tell us the story that Kings is telling us and let Chronicles tell us the story that Chronicles is telling. And the same thing is true in the Gospels. Sometimes they don't mention a particular thing because they're really wanting to highlight one aspect. It's not that they're contradictory, they're just emphasizing particular things. So it's important to do that, and mainly as we're going through Mark, we're going to really focus on how Mark is telling the story and what the Holy Spirit wants to speak to us through Mark. But it is also important that we read them together because they are telling the same story. If you really want to understand Manasseh, you need to understand that he was the most wicked of the kings of Judah and that for that reason the people were sent into exile. But you also need to understand that even the most wicked of the kings is still offered a chance to repent and he in fact does repent and comes back and gives us hope that in our own sin we can repent. So you need to read them together as well. And so the same thing is true in the Gospels. There is one story of God that is given to us, one Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, but there are four Gospel writers and they each are adding things in, and particularly the three synoptics, because John mainly tells us things the synoptics don't, and very rarely tells us things that the synoptics do. He really is emphasizing different things. But with the synoptics, it's important also to read them together because they don't contradict one another, they supplement one another. And so this morning, because uh, Mark is so brief on the temptation, I will bring in some information from Matthew and Luke, not so much by throwing it up on the screen and directly quoting it, but reminding us of things that you've probably already heard. So we're mainly going to consider what Mark wants us to understand, but sometimes that becomes clearer as we look at uh, Matthew and Luke, because Mark's going to unfold it in his gospel later. Matthew and Luke just tell us right there in the temptation, this is kind of what's going on. So that's kind of what we're going to do today. We're going to look at what this story of the temptation of Jesus is about and how does it apply today. What is it <clears throat> saying to us? And I will mention this again later, and it's important that we, in unpacking this, this temptation narrative is primarily about who Jesus is and what he went through and how that is part of the gospel. There is a secondary application that you and I can understand the process of temptation, how to fight against it, how things work in our own life, how the Holy Spirit might be working. But make no mistake, that's a secondary application. The primary thing that Mark wants us to know is not how we struggle with temptation, but who Jesus is and what went on in the life of Jesus that points this out to us. So let's dive in. What we're reading about here is actually the king being sent to battle. So notice in Mark 1.12, the first word we get is at once. In English, it's two words. At once, the Spirit sent out in the desert. This is that word I've mentioned almost every week. It, the Greek word uthus, which means immediately. Okay, Mark loves this word, I remind us, and he's using it again here. He's telling us that immediately this happens. So there's this sense of immediacy and urgency, but Mark's wanting us to make no mistake. Last week, we saw what is in essence a spiritual high moment for our Lord, okay? He's in the waters of baptism. The Holy Spirit descends upon him. The heavens are rent. The Father speaks. The Father affirms that he's the Son in whom he takes pleasure. Jesus, as it were, is announced as the King. This is a great moment. It's one of the, the few moments in the Gospels where Jesus is being given his due, so to speak. 
But Mark wants us to know Jesus gets out of the water and is not even dry. And the Spirit is propelling him out into the wilderness. And so the spiritual high of baptism and the announcement is immediately followed by the testing and temptations of the wilderness and the desert. And this is, again, just a brief application. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this morning, but I'll throw it out here. You may find the exact same thing true in your own life. Okay, that's not why Mark's telling the tale the way he is, but what is true in the life of Jesus may also be true in ours. If you've walked with the Lord for a while, sometimes you have a real experience with God. You really experience His presence. You really experience His Word. You really sense being filled with the Holy Spirit, and then like immediately it seems like, bang, there's this hard time. There's this temptation. There's this testing. I've gone from the, the lavish land of the water out into the desert, so to speak, what happened? And sometimes I'm tempted to forget and say, that must not have been what I thought it was. But that's not true. See, what happened to Jesus in the Jordan is true, and is beautiful, and it is good, and it is right. But it is immediately followed by this temptation, this testing, this trial that is going to go on out in the wilderness. And so don't be surprised. This is just a little freebie for you. Don't be surprised if you find the same thing happening in your own life, that I go from what seemed to be a spiritual high to a spiritual difficulty, from the, the, the reign of the Spirit, so to speak, to dry ground. Very often the one follows immediately, as Mark tells us, upon the other. We think that they're, they're not related. Mark is telling us, no, they're very much related with one another. Now, secondly, notice here, it's not, because Mark wants us to know, Jesus didn't mistakenly go out into the wilderness. Oh, you know, you sometimes watch a movie and somebody has a good thing happen and then they do something dumb. It's like, no, 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 don't go there. Don't. Why are you going in there and opening that door? Don't do that, right? That's not what's going on here. Notice what Mark tells us is, at once the Spirit sent him out into the desert. I believe Luke gives us the same note that the Spirit leading and guiding. But notice Jesus is not merely wandering into the wilderness. He's sent there by the same Spirit who descended out of the rent split open heavens, who anointed Jesus, uh, who filled him at his baptism there as he's being announced as the Messiah and King. This same Holy Spirit sends Jesus into the wilderness. And Here's a, a thing where I'm going to bring a little Greek up for you here just so you can understand this. The word sent is very strong, and only Mark uses this word in this passage. It's the word ekbalo. It's not important that you remember it, but it means to drive someone, to propel them, to even cast them out. The number one way it's used in Mark and in the New Testament is, and Jesus drove out demons. He cast them out. It's a strong, strong word. Mark is here letting us know this isn't just a little nudge. This isn't something, well, you could do it or you might not. What do you think? No, the Spirit propels Jesus into the wilderness. It is coming upon him to do this. So the Spirit who rests upon, who baptizes, who fills the Messiah, Son, and King is propelling him, and he's propelling him into battle is exactly what he's doing. He is sending him into battle. Because what Mark wants us to grasp here is that God is forcing the clash of the kingdoms, just as he had promised all the way back at the fall. 
So Jesus has just been announced as the Messiah, the Son, the King, the Redeemer. And if you go back to the very first mention we ever have of a Messiah, a Son, a Redeemer, it's in Genesis chapter 3, when our first parents had just fallen, and God is speaking to Satan, who's taken the form of a serpent, and God says this, and I, God, will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring, your seed, and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. So notice here, God is not saying, well, you know, this kind of thing is going to happen. God's saying, oh, there's going to be a battle, because I'm going to force the battle. I'm going to bring forth the seed of the woman. I'm going to bring forth a redeemer, and he is going to come out, and he's going to force you into battle. There is no option. And God himself is going to do this. God will cause the enmity between the Satan, the serpent, and between the seed of the woman. God is going to cause it. And so the spirit who came upon Jesus so that he's being recognized as the Messiah, son, king, now says, I'm propelling you out because there's a battle. And the battle is going to happen in the wilderness. And in fact, if I can point this out, in other words, We've let, we're going to go into the territory of Satan. And everything we're going to see in Mark's gospel is Jesus comes back and there's going to be all these clashes with demonic forces. They're all reverberations of this first battle that happens right here in the wilderness. So God is drawing Satan to battle. He's saying, I've announced the king has come. And because the king has come, he's marching into war. And he's, you know, John tells us, in another text, the reason the Son of God came was to destroy the devil's work. So Jesus, still wet from his baptism, is marching forth to war because he's been announced as the king and the first thing he's going to do is go to battle. And so Mark here is showing us that there is a link between glory and battle, that the two events of the announcement of Jesus as the Messiah's son king and the testing in the wilderness are intimately and necessarily linked. Because Jesus is the Messiah, Son, King, because he has been announced as so by the Father publicly at his baptism, there must come battle in the wilderness. There is no option. And in fact, Mark says, look, the one immediately follows upon the other as the Messiah, Son, King is propelled by the Spirit to meet the enemy in his lair. And let me point out again, just by way of application, briefly, you're going to find the same thing for us. If you want to be intimately close with Christ, there will be battle. See, I would prefer it not to be so. I would prefer just to spend time in my closet, so to speak, just me and Jesus. That works out great. But to draw close to Christ is to be drawn into battle. There is no getting around that. It was so with the Messiah. It is so with his body the church. There is no avoiding the battle. So Mark then goes and he tells us and shows us the king is actually in battle. And make no mistake here, Jesus is locked in battle with Satan himself. Notice we're told in verse 13, he's being tempted by Satan. Again, very clear. In Matthew and Luke, we get the temptations laid out. Here, Mark doesn't tell us at least these representative temptations. He just tells us there is a warfare, but notice he tells it specifically Jesus and Satan. Now this is important. Some find the idea of a real devil or Satan to be primitive, okay? But the scripture's clear. If that's what you want to say, then I'm primitive. I'll be a Neanderthal. 
Because the scripture is clear. There is a real devil. He's not the guy with the pointy horns and the pitchfork and the tail and all that kind of stuff. He is real, however. And he is arrayed against God and the kingdom of God. He is specifically arrayed against God's king, the Messiah. And he is inciting others to be in battle too. And so Mark unapologetically just says, look, the battle that is raging there is between the Messiah, son, king, and the arch enemy of God, Satan himself. They're locked in battle, and then we're going to see that battle continue to reverberate. And I uh, mentioned last week, it, you know, it happens at, or actually I haven't mentioned, it's three points. Here I'm going to show actually on the screen here, we're going to see Satan himself there's no delegation. He specifically is mentioned at three key points in Jesus' ministry. Number one, at the beginning of the public ministry, at the baptism and temptation. Satan is specifically mentioned. You can read about that here in Mark. You can see there in Matthew 4, 1 to 11, and Luke 4, 1 to 3. Secondly, the high point in the middle of Mark's gospel is when Jesus says, who do, you, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. And you remember the very next thing, Jesus says, okay, you're right. And so as the Messiah's son, king, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. And what does Peter do? Oh, no, Lord, let me, I know you're the Messiah's son, king, you're God clothed in flesh, but you're apparently not understanding certain things. Let me, Peter the theologian, explain to you what you need to understand, Jesus, and what is Jesus' response? Get behind me, Satan. He's like, ah, I've dealt with this before. I was out in the wilderness. I know who I'm dealing with. Peter, you're being a puppet, and you're being used by Satan because Satan is in all of these instances trying to turn Jesus away from the path. And then the third time is going to be the night of his betrayal. And Luke alone specifically mentions it, but Luke tells us in Luke 22, 3, that when Jesus is saying, one of you is going to betray me, and he gives the bread to Judas, we're told Satan entered him. It's a lot less often than you would think that Satan appears in the Gospels. Pay attention when he does. At these three key moments, there is this epic clash going on as the Messiah, Son, King must deal with Satan himself. And this is the first of them that we're looking at today. But we're going to see the clash throughout the Gospel of Mark. There's going to be a lot of exorcism and demonic things going on because the kingdoms are clashing with one another. The king has come, and he is here to invade the enemy's realm and defeat him. He's not leaving it alone. He's saying, no, 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 you're claiming territory, and I'm here to set the captive free. That's why I've come. So, Notice here, Mark again doesn't go through the temptations, and I'm going to talk of, about them a little bit more in uh, After Hours, which you can, again, get off the website or in the bridge uh, off our Facebook post. You can see where I'll, I'll unpack it a little bit more. But Mark doesn't do it, but what he wants us to know is Jesus is succeeding where Israel failed. Because when we hear about the wilderness, we should remember Israel's wilderness wanderings, where for 40 years they're out there. And notice here that the number 40 in the, uh, related to the wilderness always points to something key in Israel's history, okay? Number one, Moses, you remember, spent 40 days on Mount Sinai getting the law. And then he came down, of course, and what was Israel doing while Moses was getting the law from God? Right, they were down there sinning and in, in engaging in pagan revelry is how the NIV puts it because it's a rather crude picture of what's going on 
in the camp. It's terrible. And so the 40 there in the wilderness points to Israel's failure and sin. But there's another time, because that's in the law, in the prophets. The greatest of the prophets to the, the northern tribes is Elijah. And Elijah, you remember, has the epic class with the prophets of Baal, and then he has to spend 40 days in the wilderness on his way to Mount Horeb because Israel was completely toward, turned towards a foreign god, just like it happened when they came out of Egypt. So in both the law and the prophets, the wilderness and the number 40 are connected, but they are connected in such a way that God's servant is there and having to plead for Israel because Israel has sinned. And, of course, if you notice, Israel itself spent how long in the wilderness? Forty years. So individuals, it's a 40-day test, but for the nation, it's a 40-year test. And during the time, actually, we looked at this psalm uh, at the end of the summer, but I'm going to throw it up. Remember in Psalm 95, we read this. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did at Massa in the desert, which, again, is the same word as wilderness, desert, quiet place, where your fathers tested and tried me that they had seen what I did. See, the desert is supposed to be the place where you and I are tested. But what did Israel do? They tested God. They said, hey, it's not here for us to be tested. Let's test you. Boy, if that isn't a picture of our age and our day. But that's exactly what they did. And God says, you tested and tried me even though you had seen what I did. So for 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, there are people whose hearts go astray and they have not known my ways. So Israel is there in the wilderness, but their time in the wilderness, they failed at the test so bad, they turned and they tested God himself. They would not trust in God. Instead, they tested God and they did all of this in the wilderness. But notice here, Mark is very brief, but what he's telling us is Jesus, the true Israel, succeeds where Old Testament Israel had failed. When they were in the wilderness and they were tested and tried and tempted, they gave in. But Notice here, they listen to bad voices in the wilderness. Jesus does not. Rather than listening to Satan, he rebukes him. Rather than tempting and testing God, he trusts in him. Again, I'll talk about it a little bit more in after hours, but if you remember, that's exactly what Jesus has to say. He, he sees that in every case, he's saying, Satan, you're attempting to get me to test God. Will the angels keep you from dashing against the rock? Can these bread be turned into stone out here in the wilderness? Can you be fed? At every uh, temptation, Jesus says, I rebuke you. I stand against you. I will not listen to you. And I will not test the Father. I will trust the Father. So he's the exact opposite of what Israel has done. And again, I'll talk a little bit more about Jesus as Israel and how the temptations point us to that. So the Messiah, Son, King is actually the true Israel. And the good news is we're, we're old Israel, the type and shadow, the nation in the Old Testament, they failed over and over again. The Messiah, Son, King, the true Israel, he succeeds and does it brilliantly. Secondly, Jesus succeeds where Adam had failed. Mark alone gives us this strange note. He was with the wild animals. Now, this is one of the reasons you sometimes want to pay attention to each gospel because Matthew and Luke don't say that. Now, it's true that out there in the wilderness, there are wild animals. That's part of why it is a 
wilderness, the W-I-L-D. It's wild. There's all kinds of things out there that we would rather not be around. And that's true. But only Mark points this out, that Jesus is with the wild animals. And so there's been all of this thought through the history of the church. What does that mean? Why is he saying that? And some people say, well, this is like Adam. Remember, Adam was surrounded by the animals. And this is a sign that Jesus is the new Adam. He subdued the wild animals because, you know, the the lion is going to lie down with the lamb. The wolf will be there. You can even touch the viper. All of these prophecies that are coming. The problem is, I mean, and that is potentially true, but I don't think it's what is going on here. Because it doesn't say Jesus subdued the wild animals. It just notes that he is surrounded by wild animals. And so I think, and actually most commentators today actually agree with me on this, that uh, the animals are pictured not as tamed by Jesus, but as another source of danger and a picture of the fall. He is out there in a lonely, dangerous place. In one way, Mark is going out of his way to say, look, God even, God's pressing the battle, but he basically told Satan, you can have the first shot. You pick the terrain. Where do you want to do it? Oh, you want it to be surrounded by wild animals? My Messiah, son, king, will come out and will do battle on your ground, and he's still going to win. He's going to beat you on your home field. We'll let you have home field advantage all seven games in the series. We're still going to beat you because we're better than you are. That's in essence what God is doing here. And so notice here, I want you to think what this means. Consider the great contrast that's going on between Adam and Jesus, the second Adam. Where is Adam when the temptation comes to him? He's in a garden paradise. Where is Jesus? A wilderness way. See, now, if you and I had the option and I said you can build yourself a beautiful vacation home, And your two choices are Garden of Eden or Wilderness Waste. Who picks Garden of Eden? Okay, see, nobody's going out for the Wilderness Waste. But notice, Adam is in Garden Paradise. Jesus is in a Wilderness Waste. Secondly, Adam is free to eat how much? God tells me, you can have everything you want. There's one tree. I'm holding one tree back, but the rest of it is producing fruit like mad. You can eat everything you want, Adam. Whatever you want, your needs are met. What is Jesus doing out in the wilderness for 40 days? Fasting. Now, have any of you ever fasted and found out how difficult it is for you to, I mean, you know, headaches start setting in, you're not doing well. Uh, Linda learned early on when when I would be fasting, don't greet me at the door and tell me that one of the kids did something dumb because the odds of me responding in a sanctified way after I had fasted all day were not really good. Okay? It's tough. Adam, as it were, on a full stomach gets to go into his battle. Jesus has to do his battle with no food whatsoever. And then thirdly, Adam's surrounded by submissive animals. The pictures are they all come up to him, and Adam is taking them, looking at them, determining their, their full character and naming them. Jesus is surrounded by wild, dangerous beasts. All of this is pointing out to us things could not have been more favorable for Adam. And somebody remind me, what did Adam do? He failed. They could not have been worse for Jesus. And yet, he succeeded. Where the first Adam failed, the second Adam is overcome. Did you hear Tom's verses this morning in Romans 5? And thank you. I want to say thanks to Tom 
for the, the phenomenal list, the whole worship team this morning. Were those not amazing lyrics we were singing this morning? I hope you were feasting on all that. And then Tom's scripture reading out of Romans 5, the two Adams, that one Adam brought us death by his disobedience. And Mark is telling us the deck is stacked against the second Adam, and he still wins. He still overcomes in our behalf. Jesus triumphs. Then the third thing that happens here that Mark notes and he does it a little differently in the other Gospels, is there is spiritual strength from the wilderness. So Jesus is in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He's with wild animals. All of that is hard. But notice, and angels attended him. Matthew also specifically tells us that the angels attended Jesus at the end of the time of testing and trial. Now it could be that if it's referring to the end, angels attending him means they actually brought him food. When he rejected the turning the stone into bread, they could have brought him food. And the reason that some say that is because Elijah in the wilderness, angels came and brought him sustenance. So it could be that Jesus trusted the Father, and at the end of it, the Father sent angels with food. That's a possible meaning out of it. But whatever it is, I would think that that is mainly secondary. The point really is that as Jesus is there in battle, and it's a difficult time. The, the amazing thing is that it actually is also a strengthening time. Luke actually tells us that he comes out of the wilderness full of the Spirit and power. That is the outcome of it. And that is because what's going on here, Jesus, the Messiah's son, King, is triumphing in battle over the great lion and the serpent, Satan, and he's ministered to by the angelic host. Psalm 91, notice how similar this is to the points that Mark is making. This is at the end of Psalm 91, and as you remember, Satan quotes this to Jesus, okay? But we're told, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. So notice that the picture here is that the angels are ministering to, they are guarding, they are protecting, but there is a fight that's going on, and we're being told that he, Jesus, will tread upon the lion and the cobra. He will trample the great lion and the serpent. And so we're told again, Satan quotes this exact passage out of context, attempts to get Jesus to test the Father with it, but Jesus knows what the Scripture means. And so actually in Satan's misuse of Scripture, Jesus tramples upon him, fulfilling Genesis chapter 3. And again, we know that that was specifically there in the other two. So Eventually, we find out that the angels are ministering to Jesus in the wilderness so that the time of testing and temptation and warfare actually strengthens him for the ministry to come. And again, secondary, so I'm not going to spend much time on it, but you and I find the same thing. See, testing and trial produces strength in us. It's just a reality. I mean, I wish it was what I wish produced strength in my body was sitting around in my recliner watching football, eating bonbons, you know, chips, having a beer, and never having to work out. But can I have a doctor here help me? Is that a plan for helping my body? <laughs> Melissa? Okay, you passed your medical exam. All right. Okay, see, it's struggle that actually produces strength. 
And so the Messiah son king has been anointed there as it were in the garden of the Jordan. But the strengthening comes actually in the testing. And so angels minister to him. See, we would all like to have angels minister to us, right? But see, it may be that when an angel shows up, he's like, I'm just here for after the battle. Okay, because that's the reality. That's when we need it. And Luke tells us that Jesus comes back strong in the word. So what does this mean for us? What is, what is Mark wanting us to grasp out of this? Number one, we apply the word and uh, what God wants us to do is to rejoice that our king is victorious in battle. Just as in the baptism we saw that Jesus identifies with us, so also in the temptation and testing he identifies with us. And so the, the grace that is given to him in his water baptism and the descent of the Spirit upon him as the Messiah, that grace is given to us as well. But the same thing is true. The battle he goes through, the victory he wins is ours. And so Jesus, um, as the true Israel, he succeeds where Israel had failed. Where Israel failed as the Son of God, Jesus is victorious as the Son of God. Where Adam fails as God's Son and King over creation, Jesus as the second Adam is victorious as our King and as the Son who is over all creation. And so, I did not know Tom was going to read out of Romans 5 this morning, but I'm going to put up a verse from Romans chapter 5. I think you were being led by the Spirit. Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says this, For just as through the disobedience of the one man, who's that? Adam. Just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. See, I don't like that Adam's sin affected me. Let's be honest, we don't like that, do we? But see, it's a twofer deal. Because who likes the fact that Jesus' obedience affects you? See, that's a good deal. And in fact, as you hear and read in Romans 5, he's like, look, as bad as it is what we got from Adam, how much greater is it? Because the fact is, every one of us have been our own Adam. Every one of us have sinned. And did you hear what, what the Lord was speaking through Thomas morning? It was not one transgression. It's many transgressions we've had that have brought death. And one act. Jesus Christ brings life for all. And so it is, it is important for us to be able to recognize this and for us to rejoice. We die through Adam's failure, but everyone who is in Christ is made alive through his triumph. We who've been shaped by sin are now being refashioned by righteousness through Jesus. And all of that is done because he did it in our behalf. It is his identity. This is what's being done externally to us. I haven't even talked about what the Spirit might be working in us internally, but this is so important. So the first thing that we need to grasp out of this as the people of God is we need to rejoice for our King's victory is our victory as well. Okay? We all probably see the thing of, you know, you know the, the silliness. When my football team wins, what do I say? I don't say my team when I say we won because I had a lot to do with it, right? A couple of weeks ago, I got to sit there with my brother-in-law and his team lost. But while I was drinking beer and eating nachos and buffalo wild wings, I helped my team win, right? 
See, I had nothing to do with it. But don't we all do that? Our team, we win. So my son cannot rejoice that Air Force won yesterday because he had nothing to do with it. So, but see, here's good news. It may be true that in football that's silly, but you know where you can do it? My team won. Because my king won. I had nothing to do with it. In fact, all I did was get in the way. You ever watch the kung fu movies where some guy's trying to help and he just keeps getting in the way? That's you and I in salvation. We're just in the way, okay? And Jesus is having to scoot us out of the way while he's doing battle, okay? And we look more ridiculous even than that. But the good news is our king's victory is ours as well. His victory over Satan ensures your victory over Satan. The battle's not in doubt. The battle's already been done. It's like re-watching an old Super Bowl. The outcome's going to be the same. It's already been done. His victory over sin ensures your victory and my victory over sin as well. And ultimately, his victory over death ensures my victory over death as well. So if you are, number one, not a believer, I urge you to look to Christ because you are not going to do battle. See, the bad news is if you get out there in that kung fu battle on your own, you're going to die quickly. And so am I. So if you have never embraced Christ, I urge you, look to him, embrace him. You cannot win the battle on your own. You and I will not, but Jesus has done it for us. And if you are a believer, then let that bring joy to your soul because this is what Christ has done. It is outside of you and I with no participation on our part, but his victory is granted to us. That is the gospel. Now, the second aspect of how we can uh, apply it, is we can receive strength from our king for our own spiritual battles. This, again, is only an application. The primary point of this text is not principles of spiritual warfare or whatever we do. It's about Jesus uniquely as the Messiah, Son, King, doing battle to win salvation for God's people. That's the primary point. But there are secondary applications that come out of such texts. And one of them is that um, we can grow in our own spiritual walk through spiritual warfare and temptations. And how we know that this is a secondary application is because in the book of Hebrews, I began the meeting by quoting from the whole passage, but notice Hebrews 2.18 tells us, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are what? being tempted. So see, what Jesus went through in the wilderness does eventually filter down to you and I in our own temptation, trial, and struggle. It's primarily that he's won the battle, but he does give help and aid to us in our own struggle. And see, it's good news, and and we need to grasp and meditate on this and think through it, because the difficulty when we're in the midst of temptation, how strong does temptation seem to be? Oh, man, I mean, the whole world collapses in on it, doesn't it? I mean, it is so hard to resist. But here's the reality. Jesus went through more temptation with greater stakes than you and I can even imagine. The stakes were eternal for all, okay? That's why 
he can help us. Because whatever you and I are facing, whatever temptation or testing or trial, and by the way, if you didn't know it, the Greek word is the same for all of those. The word to tempt and the word to test or undergo trial is the same word. Because it just really depends on the the attitude of the one doing it. Satan is tempting us. God is testing us and refining us in the same experience. What Satan means for evil, God means to bring us good and strength. And so Jesus has done this, and one result of his victory is he can help us. We're in the midst of our own temptations and trials. Now what Satan wants to do when you and I are being tempted and tested and tried, what does he tell us? How how big a host do we have around us? None. You're, You're on your own. But you are out here. It's just you. There's nobody there. But see, that's not true. It was true for Jesus, but it's not true for you and I. He tells us we're alone. He tells us we can never win. He tries to malign God's word and purposes and intentions, but he's a liar. And if you read the temptation, because interestingly, the temptation Jesus has is the same ones Israel has in the wilderness is the same ones Adam has in the garden. Okay, the first temptation's about food. Okay, All of this is, and there's a testing of God's motives. Will God actually keep his word? Has God really said? You'll see the same temptations, and that's exactly what he does with us. He wants to malign God's intentions, God's purpose. If God really loved you, if God was really at work, if that was really an experience you had down there in the Jordan, you wouldn't be going through this right now. But see, that's not true. No, the same spirit who met me in the Jordan propelled me here because what you mean for evil, God's going to work for good. What you mean to tempt me and cause me to fall, God is going to use to refine me and strengthen me so that I come out of this full of the Spirit's power. And by the way, there's a whole host of big angels right outside the door waiting to come and attend me. Okay, that's what God wants us to speak and to understand. Do the same thing Jesus does. Satan, you are a liar. God's word is true. God's purposes are true. God's heart towards me is always true. Jesus has overcome, and that is good news not just because of the gospel, but in the application that means he can strengthen me in my own hour of need. His word is always true. His purposes and intentions are always true the best. So whatever trial you and I face this week, God wants us to say, hey, you know what? I remember, and I want to draw upon uh, my Lord and his power. And what we're going to do, we're going to come to the Lord's table, and kind of as a way of us drawing strength, we are going to read uh, together a passage of Scripture, because here the Lord wants to speak to and to minister to us. So if you can, let's stand together. And we're going to be reading from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. And I want us to uh, read it together so we can hear, because notice it's we have these things. So rather than me reading it as I meditated before the Spirit this week, I thought let's read it together. So We're going to just read through the whole passage, and then we'll come to the Lord's table. Hear the word of your king to you as he invites you to his feast. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest 
who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let's go ahead and be seated. I want to encourage you as we come to the Lord's table to do exactly that, what it just said in verse 14, to come and receive grace to strengthen us in our time of need. If you are a believer, you are welcome to this table. You do not have to be a member of our congregation. You do need to have embraced the gospel. And understand your only hope of salvation is that Jesus was tempted in every way, yet was without sin, that he was perfectly obedient. The very things we sang this morning, if you believe and embrace that, you're invited to the table. If you don't, then please see me afterwards and let's talk about why you're not a follower of our King and uh, we can talk about that, and then you can come to the Lord's table with us in the future. For what I receive from the Lord, I also pass on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we get ready to come uh, to the table and take the bread, let's take just a moment to be before the Lord and let the Lord by His Spirit speak if there's any area of struggle or temptation or doubt or difficulty. Give that over to the Lord and then let's fasten our eyes and our hope upon Jesus. Brothers and sisters, let us now approach the throne of grace with confidence and receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. If you can take the bread. Lord Jesus, as the second Adam, you took our flesh. And as our king, you marched into the wilderness to do battle with Satan, and you conquered him in our behalf. For you withstood every temptation, perfectly submitting to the will of the Father, fulfilling all righteousness in our place. And so, Lord, we take this bread with joy and faith, celebrating your victory in our place and trusting you alone for salvation. Brothers and sisters, take and eat. Lord Jesus, you are our great high priest. Though you were perfect and without sin, you sacrificed yourself for us that we might be forgiven and restored to our Father. You did not offer the blood of bulls and goats, but rather you offered yourself the sinless, spotless, holy, blameless, pure Lamb of God. By your sacrifice, you have atoned for our sin and given us access 
to the throne of grace. So we take this cup with joy and faith, celebrating the atonement we have by your blood and trusting you alone for our salvation and deliverance. Brothers and sisters, take and drink. Let's stand together and cry out to our God so that we might depart from this place full of the Spirit and power. Our great God, we have gathered in worship as your people today, and we have been strengthened by fellowship and ministry, by prayer and song, by word and sacrament. And now we cry out for you to fill us anew. Through the work of Jesus, we approach the throne of grace and we do so with confidence. Through you, we now receive help for our hour of need. Come upon us in power now. O Spirit of God, empower us so that we might resist temptation and that we might stand strong against the devil's schemes, that we might overcome all the power of the enemy. And as we follow your leading this week, may we return next week full of the Spirit's power to celebrate the gospel together. We ask all of this from you, our God, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, one God in three persons, eternally blessed forevermore. And God's people say, Amen. Now may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, you are blessed. Go forth full of blessing and be a blessing. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.